Sanjukta Nag wrote a poem entitled The Irony of Civilization in 2015. It reads something like this. Under the mountain, beside the fire, we roared against the audacity of darkness, painted our bare, hairy limbs using the sharp teeth of stalactites. We engraved the moon inside our cave wall and worshipped her with bison's raw blood. Beneath moss-covered trees, every night our wild bodies made love, sipping the rotten smoke of burned carcasses. Survival was harder than it sounds. Still, our hearts radiated like amaranth flower. With each rising ray of ancient sun, in spite of living in the chasm of uncertainty, never these primitive souls got lost in a forest of depression or bowed heads to the empire of negativity, like modern men do under the security of roofs. Most of us tend to have overwhelmingly positive thoughts regarding the concept of civilization. A lot of that amounts to a bias towards the world that we know. We are a part of civilization and therefore want the thing that we are a part of to be positive. This line of thought simultaneously represents a confirmation bias, hindsight bias, anchoring bias, self-serving bias, and of course, a false consensus effect. Our previous episode provided a comparison of the biblical Garden of Eden and the real-life cradle of humanity in Africa. We also examine the scientific theories that explain how humans evolved differently in order to better understand our place within the world. Yet some listeners may have angrily noticed something that I purposefully left out regarding the biblical book of Genesis, namely that the Old Testament never identifies the garden as existing within the continent of Africa. Instead, Genesis tells you exactly where it is, identifying four of the land's rivers by name, thus allowing us to geographically pinpoint the actual Garden of Eden as the modern-day nation of Iraq. This isn't some deep, dark secret, as the wetlands that lie at the intersection of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers have long been recognized as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It was the former home to the Marsh Arabs, and throughout history was described as absolutely breathtaking. But in the 1980s, then-Iraqi President Saddam Hussein drained the marshlands, partly to punish his political enemies, and partly in search of oil necessary to fuel his wars and ambition. Beneath Saddam's oppressive rule, the inspiration for humanity's Garden of Eden shrunk from 3,500 square miles to a mere 290. Azam Alwash is one of thousands working around the clock to resurrect the site. Now at roughly 40% of the land restored, Alwash can look back with a sense of optimism which had eluded him when the project began. Recently, he went on the record, rhetorically asking, how do you describe destruction? Where life was, where reeds were, where birds roam, where fishing took place, where life was happening. Now you have nothing but sand, clay, and tumbleweed. The modern-day people that called the inspiration for the biblical Garden of Eden home lived simple lives. 
ones that were entirely dependent upon remaining interconnected to their environment. The travel journal Roads and Kingdoms notes that there was very little crime among the peoples of the marsh. Locals attribute that success to the strength of the individual tribe leaders that maintained the harmony. The article quotes one sheik stating that, We have no conflict here because of the way society is made. The tribes have good relationships between each other, so people respect the law. That sounds a lot like civilization, our chosen topic for this episode. But the Marsh Arabs tend to find themselves outside of the traditional definition of civilization, which imagines complex economic exchanges which occur among massive buildings that scrape the sky. Our bias towards civilization is even confirmed by our dictionary definitions, which strongly imply its desirability. For instance, Oxford Languages explains the concept of civilization as the stage of human social and cultural development and organization that is considered most advanced. Civilizations independently formed on every single continent but Antarctica, with far more nomadic tribes settling down than city folk packing up and hitting the road. Humans possess a natural momentum towards progress. It feels desirable for us to seek the top of the pyramid. But if civilization is the top of the hierarchy, what's below it? The term that we often choose to use as the opposite of civilization is barbarians, a word that seethes with negative connotation. Crash Course's John Green, however, fights back about that notion noting that the hill people, or barbarians if you will, often prefer to remain uncivilized. Theirs is a simple life, one far from state control. In fact, the absence of traditional taxes is one of the most common reasons to run for the hills. Reducing the size of your population makes it far easier to function together direct democracy, Athens' contribution to global governance, allowed its citizens to directly engage and vote on every single issue. That just isn't possible for a large modern-day society, but it can be for a tribal society. This is one of the many warrants that led Green to argue that barbarians don't reside on a rung lower than the civilized. They are just people who prefer a different way of life. And the more you learn about civilization, the easier it is to understand why they prefer to remain ungoverned by modern states. In fact, the civilized will often provide the reasons to run for the hills. That's what happened when British colonialist Sir Stamford Raffles, the founder of British Singapore, stated for the record that, Here I am an advocate of despotism. The strong arm of power is necessary to bring men together and to concentrate them into societies. Sumatra is, in great measure, peopled by innumerable petty tribes, subject to no central government. At present, people are just wandering in their habitats as birds of the air, and until they are congregated and organized under something like authority, nothing can be done with them. 
Green concludes that Raffles makes an accidental but pretty damning indictment of civilization to say that the reason people exist is so that something can be done with them. Have we enslaved ourselves beneath the deity of civilization? You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon the world's first explorers, early mankind. Episode number two, The Civilized Among Us. Modern humans resided in Africa at least 160,000 years ago. The geographical Garden of Eden was so comfortable for them that they, like many children living in their parents' basement, didn't want to leave it. Sometimes between 60 to 90,000 years ago, major waves of migration occurred. The exact reason for our abandonment of the Congo is unknown but the UK Natural History Museum points to the fact that there were several humid phases which may have facilitated the spread of Homo sapiens to the far reaches of the world. Still, life wasn't easy in the days of early civilization, with scientists pointing out that there were also severe periods of aridity before and after this time meaning that the region was probably more often a boulevard of broken dreams than a stable haven for early humans. But these migrants had clues for when to risk their journeys into the unknown. Discover Magazine points out that ice ages occur regularly and last for tens of thousands of years. They also are known to have significantly changed the climate of Northeast Africa, one of the most likely passages of our great exodus. This area of Africa and our path through the Middle East is prone to desertification, the formation of deserts that were thought to be impenetrable to our ancestors, specifically the Saharan and the Arabian. When the glacial periods are absent, though, it's a free-for-all. Parts of Northeast Africa become lush and flourish with rich ecosystems, forming a route between Africa and the Middle East that researchers refer to as green corridors, passages assumed not only favorable, but necessary for human migration. The Smithsonian Magazine suggests that the original exodus involved anywhere from 1,000 to 50,000 people. Scientists do not agree on the time of the departure, or the departure point. But most now appear to be leaning away from the Sinai, once the favored location, and towards a land bridge crossing in what today is the Bab el-Mandeb Strait, separating Djibouti from the Arabian Peninsula at the southern end of the Red Sea. From there, the thinking goes, migrants could have followed a southern route eastward along the coast of the Indian Ocean, It could have been almost accidental, a path of least resistance that did not require adaptations to different climates, topographies, or diet. 
the migrant's path never veered far from the sea, departed from warm weather, or failed to provide familiar food, such as shellfish and tropical fruit. These wanderers eventually made it to Asia, Indonesia, and even Australia to form the early hunter-gatherer societies found there. Another wave of migrants arrived later in Egypt and Mesopotamia and formed the first of civilized society. The story of Mesopotamia, the land between two rivers, is well known and extensively taught. The Tigris and Euphrates rivers, which frame the current nation of Iraq, offered the ideal geographical conditions to foster sedentary lifestyles. There are four keys necessary to form a civilization. Water, agriculture, a surplus of people, and communication. The first two are pretty easy for my students to guess. All early civilizations, the Sumerians, the Egyptians, the Harappan Indian civilization, and the Yangshao Chinese, settled next to rivers. Nomadic civilizations, the opposite of civilization, spend the vast majority of their time and energy in search of food. Ironically, the original root of the word nomad was nomos, which, according to the Smithsonian Magazine, can be translated as a fixed or bounded area. Someone who was nomas was implied to be looking for a place to graze their herds. It wasn't until individuals began to settle down that the word nomad came to describe those who lived without walls and beyond boundaries, now carrying the implicit judgment that such people are drifters, migrants, vagrants, people on the move, or even on the run. They are people who are not known. History tends to ignore these people because, in the words of French philosopher Gilles Deleuze, nomads have no history. They only have a geography. Situating themselves by a river meant that they had easy access to drinkable water. In addition to edible fish, the rivers drew game animals towards the hunters lying in wait. As societies grew larger and more complex, the river offered an easy way to transport goods and people. But the true key to unlocking civilization was the ability to irrigate the water in order to increase agricultural productivity. Mesopotamia and Egypt were both cradles of civilization, due to the fact that farming the nearby lands was absurdly easy. The Nile floods regularly, dredging up and depositing incredibly fertile silt from the bottom of the river. Ancient Egyptians were said to have merely had to throw seeds towards the riverbanks in order to grow crops. Mythology locks in our understanding of the importance of the Nile by tying it directly to the powerful god Osiris, who came to represent fertility and resurrection. Each flood brought renewal to an oasis that flowed along the tame river. 
the Tigris and Euphrates were quite a bit more violent, inspiring mythological stories such as Gilgamesh, where one of the protagonists gains eternal life as a result of being the only survivor of a great flood. The Messianic Jewish Theological Institute recognizes the similarities between the great flood included within the tablets of Gilgamesh and the Old Testament story of Noah. They note that it's not surprising that there would be variants in the stories because the ancient world likely heard the story from their ancestors through an oral epic poem so that it would be easily remembered. The group of scholars goes further, reminding readers that Gilgamesh and Genesis both include a plant that is said to give eternal life, as well as identifying a serpent as the story's main antagonist, one whose treachery results in man's loss of eternal life. Floods were a regular but unpredictable part of life in the Fertile Crescent. Some were said to have been so large that it would have seemed as though the entire world was being flooded by some great deity. We don't have great records for the ancient world, but we do know that in 1256 AD, a flood lasted for 50 consecutive days. Furthermore, we know that flood protection was on the mind of Mesopotamian rulers, with the Babylonians building the first known modern dam. That stretched out at least 50 kilometers. Historians' ears always pick up when there are repeated tales across cultures. Geology professor Lawrence Collins is among those who believe that the biblical flood occurred, just not across the entire globe. He points out that similar large local floods are common throughout history, noting that almost every culture throughout history has a flood story to tell. He goes through the science behind naturally forming sediment that would have formed and then broken during a large storm around 2900 BCE. Here is his description of what it would have felt like for the residents of Mesopotamia. When the huge storm ceased that caused the flood, there would have been huge lakes and it could have taken months to drain the water in these lakes into the gulf, which could easily explain why the Noah flood took so long to recede, as much as one year according to Genesis. Because of the curvature of the earth, the horizon drops from where the viewer is standing. A tribal chief standing on the deck of a large ark would not be able to see the tops of any hills as high as 15 meters from as little as 24 kilometers away across floodplains covered with water. Therefore, none of the high country in Saudi Arabia or Iran would be visible. On that basis, the quote, whole world would definitely appear to be covered with water during the flood. And that was the whole world for the people in this part of southeastern Mesopotamia at the time. I spent a lot of time in the previous episode talking about the Creation Museum in Kentucky. I would therefore be remiss if I didn't mention the organization's sister exhibit known as the Ark Encounter. They built the exhibit according to the description found in the Bible, spanning 510 feet long, 85 feet wide, and 51 feet high. The three decks of the ark contain two replicas of every creature saved by the biblical Noah. 
The construction of the replica cost more than $100 million and involved a crew of 50 workers to labor intensely for six days a week over an 18-month period. The head of the construction crew had two notes after completing the project. First, he said that according to his estimates, it would have taken Noah 75 years to complete the original ark. Secondly, he informed everyone that was listening that the land-based attraction definitely wouldn't float on water. Even worse for the organization that runs the for-profit attraction, heavy rains in 2019 caused more than $1 million worth of damage, for which the ark wasn't insured for. A ticket to the Ark Encounter will only cost you $60. But you will get to snap a few pictures next to the dinosaurs that the Creation Museum claims were graciously saved by Noah. Keeping Velociraptors sounds like a dangerous enough idea that I will make it my free movie giveaway of the day. As I am sure that there are a few million people who would be willing to watch a Snakes on the Plane styled movie, that sees a few meat-eaters getting loose and devouring a few Christians during the catastrophic flood. Perhaps we'll call it Jurassic Ark. As dangerous as it was to reside in a flood zone, living within a river valley was a necessary evil for the formation of civilization. Hunting and gathering is fine for small populations, but only agriculture can allow a group of people to settle in one place permanently. Journalist Charles Mann notes that the agricultural or Neolithic revolution was a critical transition that took Homo sapiens from scattered groups of hunter-gatherers to farming villages, and from there to technologically sophisticated societies with great temples and towers and kings and priests who directed the labor of their subjects and recorded their feats in written form. Man informs us that the Neolithic Revolution is viewed as a single event, a sudden flash of genius, that occurred in a single location, Mesopotamia. It then spread to India, Europe, and beyond. Most archaeologists believe that this sudden blossoming of civilization was driven largely by environmental changes, a gradual warming as the Ice Age ended that allowed some people to begin cultivating plants and herding animals in abundance. Continuous access to plentiful food was essential to fuel our brain development and coincided with the invention of significantly more complex tools to aid in farming and irrigation. Dependable surplus amounts of food allowed early civilizations to maintain their population through good times and bad. It also necessitated a complex form of bureaucratic rule that only comes with the establishment of permanent governments. The people of Summer, the world's first known civilization, paid its laborers in food and beer. That latter invention came slightly before the Neolithic Revolution, and according to Berkeley's Jared Kelly, it was the desire for beer that was fundamental in the decisive rise of the Neolithic Revolution, 
and the development of human civilization as the Sumerians attempted to control and recreate a happy little accident where jarred wild barley had encountered wild yeast, resulting in fermentation. It may sound silly, but beer played a role in the social stratification that seems to come naturally to the civilized world, as temple workers would receive 1.75 liters for a day's worth of work, while those of a higher class, such as senior dignitaries, would receive approximately five times that level. It also played a direct role in most religious ceremonies, later resulting in the Middle Eastern religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam to strongly warn against excess consumption. There was another major side effect of the Neolithic Revolution. The American Association of the Advancement of Science points out that farmers were more prone to zoonotic or animal-based diseases. A new study by infectious disease specialist Mihai Nate found that as farmers got sick more often, their immune system swiftly developed to adapt to new pathogens. The association writes that when infected with pathogens that tend to start as localized infections, farmers likely mounted more robust inflammatory responses than earlier hunter-gatherers. A strong inflammatory response can quell a localized infection before it spreads, but a robust systemic response, as sparked by the flu or malaria, can spiral out of control. Historian Howard French is one of those who fully understands the implications of such findings. As he notes throughout his excellent work titled Born in Blackness, that the massive die-off of the Americas, mostly hunter-gathering tribal societies, meant that European civilizations had to turn to the importation of African slaves in order to make the newly discovered Americas economically viable. This early immunity advantage, as well as access to a consistent supply of food, allowed civilization to establish a surplus population, meaning that they had more people than they needed. In a hunter-gathering society, everyone is necessary to produce food for the group. In simple terms, a group of 50 people is easier to feed than a group of a thousand. In that instance, the hunting party only needs to successfully kill one deer. Assuming one serving per person, a single white-tailed deer is said to feed up to 200 people. 20 hunters departing the tribe would surely be able to locate at least one deer per trip, and if they did manage to come up empty-handed, the gatherers would have found enough food to stave off any threat of starvation. As the population goes up, the odds of starvation increase. This wasn't a problem in Mesopotamia, however, as the domestication of animals began in earnest shortly after they settled into their permanent homes. The wolf was among those first tamed, and soon became the domesticated dog that we know and love. They also domesticated goats, cattle, horses, camels, birds, and pigs. Rather than going out to hunt, the people of Mesopotamia merely went to the captive herd to find their dinner. Soon, the population began to take off. Prior to the agricultural revolution, the human population of the entire planet 
was less than that of today's city of Cairo. In an uncivilized tribal society, everyone has to work multiple jobs. The gatherers are also in charge of early childcare. The hunters are also expected to perform the tasks of warriors. And anyone who is close enough to the wounded suddenly becomes a doctor. Although 90% of the early Sumerian population of Mesopotamia worked to produce food, the remaining 10% could look to specialize in a number of different fields. Priests, scribes, merchants, craftsmen, soldier, and civil servants all emerged within the help-wanted ads that were inscribed upon cuneiform tablets. There was even someone who wrote down the first recipe for beer on a tablet dating back to 1800 BCE. The founder of Anchor Brewing Company in San Francisco took it upon themselves to brew that recipe, finding that the alcohol content was similar to modern-day beers at 3.5%, and that it had a dry taste lacking in bitterness likening it to a hard apple cider. Unfortunately, the Sumerians hadn't figured out refrigeration, and therefore, because it had to be immediately consumed after production, Anchor Brewing decided not to market its revival. Civilization, therefore, resulted in job specialization. I am a better teacher because that is my main focus including a delightful two and a half months off each summer in order to hone my craft by leisurely reading history books on my back porch. The ability to specialize in a task makes you far more efficient, but it doesn't necessarily make you smarter. In fact, historian Yuval Noah Harari notes that the human collective knows far more today than did the ancient bands. But at the individual level, ancient foragers were the most knowledgeable and skillful people in history. There's even some evidence that the size of the average sapien's brain has actually decreased since the age of foraging. Survival in that area required superb mental abilities from everyone. When agriculture and industry came along, people could increasingly rely on the skills of others for survival, and new niches for imbeciles were opened up. This is entirely believable to us, as Macquarie University notes that neuroscience research has shown that smartphones are making us stupider, less social, more forgetful, more prone to addiction, sleeplessness, and depressed, and poor at navigation. Still, they are nice for listening to podcasts. Despite having a supercomputer in our pocket, we aren't even that much better at the tasks that our ancient ancestors invented, as more than 90% of the calories that feed humanity come from the handful of plants, wheat, rice, corn, potatoes, millet, and barley that our ancestors domesticated for us between 9,500 and 3,500 BCE. The fourth and final key to civilization is communication. It's the hardest for my students to initially grasp. The idea is almost too simplistic for them, as they guess things like army, money, roads, and clothing. But all of those things are made possible through communication. 
Harari notes that our communication skills set us apart from every other species on the planet, pointing out that our language evolved as a way of gossiping, as social cooperation is our key for survival and reproduction. He, like everyone who has ever been sucked into the endless scroll of modern-day social media, believes that Homo sapiens are primarily a social animal. We do not only want to experience something for ourselves, we have to make sure that every stranger within shouting distance knows that we experienced it. Only our advanced brains are capable of storing the information necessary to deal with the surplus population that is the inevitable byproduct of all civilizations, informing us that in a ban of 50 individuals, there are 1,225 one-on-one relationships and countless more complex social combinations. The numbers spiral out of control quickly. Robin Dunbar, a professor of evolutionary psychology, notes that although we can remember thousands of names of acquaintances, we can only maintain stable relationships with between 100 and 231 people. That is far greater than what is possible within a tribe of monkeys, which Dunbar estimates can only maintain relationships with 14 other members of their species. And among those 14, there are bound to be at least a few poop throwers that ruin your day. Our ability to remember so many minute details about so many of our peers emerges from our innate desire to be a social creature, for both good and the bad, including gossip about who is sleeping with whom. Harari notes that as far as we know, only sapiens can talk about entire kinds of entities that they have never seen, touched, or smelled. In short, we are the only ones that can create a fake reality for ourselves. The historian drives home his point by noting that you could never convince a monkey to give you a banana by promising him limitless bananas after death in monkey heaven. This hypothetical is distinct from lying, which monkeys have been known to do with regularity. One observed method of deception is for one chimp to utilize a specific call that identifies a nearby lion, only to go and steal the victim's banana after they beat a hasty retreat from the imagined threat. Sapiens, on the other hand, are able to develop a complicated backstory for why the lion was there in the first place. It is our ability to imagine things that resulted in creating organized religion, complex governments, and shared identities that unfortunately gave birth to nationalism, racism, and imperialism. The ability to create fiction has enabled us to not merely imagine things, but to do so collectively. Such myths give us the unprecedented ability to cooperate flexibly in large numbers. Social constructs have power. Harari notes that there are no gods in the universe, no nations, no money, no human rights, no laws, and no justice outside the common imagination of human beings. One of the greatest of our lies may be that we tamed the wild. Harari argues that rather than the other way around, crops may have domesticated us. Converting us from intelligent, independent hunter-gatherer societies 
to wheat farmers, noting that 10,000 years ago, wheat was just a wild grass, one of many, confined to a small range in the Middle East. Suddenly, within a few short millennia, it was growing all over the world. According to the basic evolutionary criteria of survival and reproduction, wheat has become one of the most successful plants in the history of the Earth. Within a couple of millennia, humans in many parts of the world were doing little from dawn to dusk other than taking care of wheat plants. It wasn't easy. Wheat demanded a lot of them. Wheat didn't like rocks and pebbles, so sapiens broke their backs clearing fields. Wheat didn't like sharing its space, water, and nutrients with other plants. So men and women labored long days weeding under scorching sun. Wheat got sick, so sapiens had to keep a watch out for worms and blight. Wheat was attacked by rabbits and locust swarms, so the farmers built fences and stood guard over the fields. Wheat was thirsty, so humans dug irrigation canals, or lugged heavy buckets from the well to water it. Sapiens even collected animal feces to nourish the ground in which wheat grew. In his lofty estimate, Harari notes that the agricultural revolution was a trap, one which we have lied to ourselves about for millennia. It has resulted in elevating the concept of civilization while simultaneously downgrading nomadic societies, those that wheat had failed to tame. Those of us that reside within the highest rungs of the first world slash developed world tend to work for an average of 40 to 45 hours per week, which is far better than the 60 to 80 hours spent working in the developing world. Yet hunter-gatherers living in the Kalahari Desert, which locals know as the Great Thirst, only work 35 hours per week, hunting for one day out of three and gathering for three to six hours each day. They also have no dishes to wash, no lawns to water, or bills to pay. Harari contrasts the life of a Chinese peasant across time periods, writing that today a Chinese factory hand leaves home around 7 in the morning, makes her way through polluted streets to a sweatshop, and there operates the same machine in the same way, day in, day out, for 10 long and mind-numbing hours, returning home around 7 in the evening in order to wash dishes and do the laundry. 30,000 years ago, a Chinese forager might leave camp with her companions at, say, 8 in the morning. They'd roam the nearby forests and meadows, gathering mushrooms, digging up edible roots, catching frogs, and occasionally running away from tigers. By early afternoon, they were back at the camp to make lunch. That left them plenty of time to gossip, tell stories, play with the children, and just hang out. Of course, the tiger sometimes caught them, or a snake bit them. But on the other hand, they didn't have to deal with automobile accidents and industrial pollution. It all makes us wonder about how successful our own lives have been. Did the hill people, as John Green prefers to call them, have it right all along? He states for the record that as states civilized and came to rely on the exploitation of agricultural labor and the subjugation of their citizens, then the civilization narratives that barbarians were drawn to civilizations by their obvious superiority 
is kind of problematic. There's a big downside to all that state control and taxes and conscription and servitude, and this leads us to James Scott's big idea that rather than primitive hill tribes being attracted to the glamour and stability of valley settlements, hill cultures are formed by people running away from civilization. Basically, Scott argues the people flee to the hills because it makes it hard for states to find and conquer them. For sure, evil has been perpetrated beneath the guise of civilization. 19th century colonists hid behind the concept of a civilizing mission to conduct some of the greatest atrocities in world history. Historians Boris Barth and Rolf Hobson identify a civilizing mission as an attempt made by a dominant society, a social group, an imperial elite, or an ideological community to transform a subordinate society in its own self-image. The dominant society regards the transformation as improvement because it believes itself to represent a superior culture. Genocide of the native populations of the Americas occurred beneath the guise of one such civilizing mission, the most egregious example of which was the Carlisle Indian School. Established in 1879, the school sought to Americanize natives beneath the slogan, Kill the Indian, Save the Man. 10,500 students from 140 tribes were in attendance across the 39 years that it was in operation, many of whom attended against their will as they had been kidnapped from their reservations. Of course, the civilized among us referred to such an act as a rescue. Despite stable funding streams, the school had a lower success rate than a Trump-owned business with only 158 of its students earning degrees through the program. While in school, indigenous children were forced to cut their hair, adopt Western names, and were punished if caught engaging in any traditional cultural practice. As much as we might wish it were an outlier, the Carlisle School was just one of 408 government-sponsored boarding schools where native students endured rampant physical, sexual, and emotional abuse, resulting in the death of more than 500 native children. The civilizing mission also justified the scramble for Africa, which was the uppercut that knocked the continent down for the count after it had begun to slowly recover from the devastating effects of the previous century's slave trade. It also justified subjugating the entire subcontinent of India beneath the capitalist East India Company. It even justified getting the Chinese hopelessly addicted to opium in order to force their doors open to Western progress, or as it was referred to then, trade. Despite the obvious evidence against the practice, historian Timothy Gill finds that the civilizing mission persists today within American foreign policy throughout the globe. His work focuses on the United States' push for democracy and human rights abroad throughout Latin America, particularly focusing on our constant saber-rattling towards Venezuela. One wonders if we would worry as much about the well-being of the Venezuelan people if they didn't happen to live on one of the world's largest deposits of oil. 
In this way, civilization remains a trap, one which few of us seek to escape. The decision for humans to settle in Mesopotamia began a series of events that appear inescapable. Access to plentiful, consistent forms of food and water allowed us to settle in one place. Our advanced communication and job specialization enabled us to expand our horizons through invention and ingenuity. Although it has long been said that necessity is the mother of all invention, we have been excellent at inventing new tasks that are in no way related to our continued survival. But each new task gives purpose to each new individual that serves as a cog to civilization. Slaves to our economic tasks, we wrap ourselves within our created identities to happily carve out our own little fiefdoms that hopefully include the only 150 individuals that we are truly connected to. Only 3% of the population has managed to avoid the trap of civilization. But that number appears to be growing. Digital nomads, a newly created term to describe a group of people who utilize technology to avoid being tied to a fixed geographical location, are boosting the ranks of the uncivilized. COVID has hastened this process, with the Harvard Business Review claiming that the number of digital nomads in the U.S. has increased to 11 million in 2020, a whopping 49% spike from the prior year. These individuals tend to be on the younger side, typically falling within the range of 26 to 42 years old. They tend to prioritize experiences over things. Still, these individuals can't truly run for the hills, as the one thing that digital nomads need more than anything else is a good Wi-Fi connection. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look at the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.